Tonight we come to Zechariah chapter 5, and I will be forthright with you that in this chapter we have two of the more difficult visions um, to be found in this prophecy, so we pray for God's help as I read this word. Zechariah 5, beginning verse 1. Then I turned and raised my eyes, and I saw there a flying scroll. And he said to me, What do you see? So I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is twenty cubits, and its width ten cubits. And he said to me, This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. Every thief shall be expelled according to this side of the scroll, and every perjurer shall be expelled according to that side of it. I will send out the curse, says the Lord of hosts. It shall enter the house of the thief and the house of one who swears falsely by my name. It shall remain in the midst of his house and consume it with its timber and stones. Then the angel who talked with me came out and said to me, Lift your eyes now and see what this is that goes forth. So I asked, What is it? And he said, It is a basket that is going forth. He also said, This is their resemblance throughout the earth. Here is a lead disc lifted up, and this is a woman sitting inside the basket. And he said, This is wickedness. And he thrust her down into the basket and threw the lead cover over its mouth. And I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. So I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they carrying the basket? And he said to me to build a house for it in the land of Shinar, where it is ready. When it is ready, the basket will be set there on its base. And God add his blessing to that reading of his word. Now, as I say, this chapter contains two very difficult and hard to understand visions given to Zechariah. But as usual, we claim the promise. We have no other promise but the promise given to us in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. These words must be useful to us. These words must have understanding for us and as the word of the Spirit of God gives us understanding in them. It must be useful in instruction in righteousness And we lay hold of that claim, and we pray that it would be so uh, among us this evening. Now, the two visions are of a flying scroll and of a flying basket. The most obvious thing that they both have in common is that it involves something flying, and we'll speak of that. And the other thing that they have in common is that they pertain to God dealing with the wicked. In one case, it is a, a curse against those who, fare, who swear falsely by God's name, and the other is a curse against those who are, are thieves. And then this basket, it is a removal of the wicked, um, taking them far away, a banishment into a place of exile. And the question is, what is the passage saying to us? Well, I think it's speaking about the nature of God's word. It tells us something about God's word. It tells us of its power. It tells us of, of its nature as something that goes off. It flies across the whole world and nothing keeps it from doing that. Nothing restrains it. it. There is no boundary that can keep it from doing what it is intended to do. And that this word contains a curse against sinners. And that is the word I think that is most important for us to understand. 
The whole word, as we, from the beginning to the end, and I do mean that, from the very beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, it inc- includes, yes, a blessing. And we are so used as Christians to seeing it all as a blessing. But it also contains a curse. Many curses summarized in this, this single curse that the one who sins shall surely die. It is a curse against the wicked. And this is the word of God to us tonight. This word, it has a word for unrepentant sinners. It's not a word of assurance. It's not a word of encouragement. It's not a a word of blessing, but a word of cursing and a solemn warning. That was the immediate, you know, just thinking historically as to where the people of God are as we come to Zechariah, that just previous to it, we know the words of Daniel. As Daniel's praying, as, as, as the, the time of exile is coming to an end, and he's recalling what brought them into exile, into the land of Shinar, into the land of Babylon. That's, that's the name for it. In Daniel 9, he says, yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we've sinned against him. But now, even now that they're back in the land and they, they have been restored to the land and God is blessing them, they cannot think that this element of God's word no longer exists. It remains in force and all the more so but also with an increased element of hope in the gospel, which it hints at and which we want to speak of as well. But I'm, I'm calling this sermon God's Curse on Sinners. And I have three points that go along with it. One, God's word flies. Two, the word is a curse to the wicked. And three, God will remove the wicked. So the first point is God's word flies, very simply. Verse 1, then I turned and raised my eyes and saw there a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. It's very, very clear. If there's anything clear in this whole vision, and I I do not pretend to understand every last element of it, but if there's anything clear, it is very clear that this scroll is a representation of God's word. What do we see in it? The fact that it flies. It flies. And that's just what is said in Psalm 147, verse 15. This morning, Nathan was speaking about the, the word of God and in the Psalms. The, the Psalms have a lot to say about the word of God. Well, in one of the last Psalms, Psalm 147, 15, it says this. He sends out his command to the earth and his word runs very swiftly. That's the other picture of it. It's, it's running very swiftly. It's flying very swiftly. It's going out. It's like a, a messenger. In the old, time, old days, of course, you would send out a messenger. And the messenger would run. And sometimes they'd even, you'd use the terminology of fly. Because that's the same idea. Is you're sending out some message and you're sending it out with all speed and all authority. If it's an unimportant message, it doesn't need to fly. If it's some mundane sort of thing, you, maybe if a school has that kind of message, it sends it home on, some, on, a, on a letter that may or may not get to the parents or whatnot. That's not sending out somebody flying. That's, not, that's a different sort of thing. If you're a king, you send out your word with the most important message with your messenger, and that messenger is moving as fast as he knows how. That's, that's the picture that's given to it. You know, this, this word is in great contrast to man's word. Again, some people have, uh, 
on our own experience, I'm sure that there have been some times that people have said something wonderful. You know, I, I guarantee you this wonderful thing. I'm going to do this wonderful thing for you. And it doesn't happen. Or maybe somebody else who makes himself an enemy against you says this horrible thing. I'm going to make sure this horrible thing happens against you. And that doesn't happen either. Because man's word isn't like God's word. It very often falls flat on its face. And as often as not, that's a good thing. God's word flies. Flies in many senses. It flies in the sense that it cannot be restrained. You know, that's what it says in 2 Timothy 2.9. This is Paul speaking. I, sub, I for which, the gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of change. And what he means is that at that very moment he is in jail. He is in prison. It's not just the, the house arrest he had in his first imprisonment. By the time of 2 Timothy, he is actually in chains in, in a very terrible prison. And he says, I'm in chains. I can't do anything. I'm stuck here in this prison. I'm restrained. But he says, the word of God is not restrained. Martin Luther said the very same sort of thing. He said, I'm just here in Wittenberg. Sometimes I'm working, sometimes I'm not. Sometimes I'm sleeping, sometimes I'm eating and drinking. The word of God carries on the great work that God has for it, and nobody can restrain it. And it does this great and powerful work all over the world. You know, by the way, many have tried to restrain the word of God. Many have tried to destroy it. But as a wise man said, the Bible is an anvil that has worn out many a hammer. It's still here. They haven't gotten rid of it yet and they never shall. Now it also flies, I think, the word of God flies in the sense that it goes out to the whole world. That's the, the sense that we have. That it's not something localized and limited. And that much is pictured in Revelation 14.6. And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven. Having what? The everlasting gospel to, to preach To all those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So appropriate that God would send out his messenger, the angel, as he goes out to the whole world. And so God's word goes out to the whole world as as the church is obedient to that call to preach it. And perhaps emphasized by the large size, I didn't even mention it, but, you know, this length of 20 cubits, a cubit is this, you know, your, uh, a man's arm and hand, that's a cubit, a little bit more than a foot, and it's, it's 10 by, by 20 cubits. That's like a minibus-sized object, and that's what is being pictured flying in the world. It's not something small, it's not something insignificant, it's not something that if it comes and lands on you, you're not even going to notice it. This curse, this word of God comes on you, you're going to know it. And that's, that's the point. It is powerful. God upholds his word, uh, the world through his word. He governs the universe through it. Hebrews 1.3, Christ being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power. Right now, all things are being upheld by the word of his power. It's just that powerful. And that word accomplishes precisely what God desires for it. Also in Hebrews, it tells us so much about God's word. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's being likened to a sword here. Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's word is anything but something stagnant and something powerless, something just lying flat on the page. It is something that is out there doing precisely what God has for it. And nothing, no force on earth can restrain it. 
God's word flies. But secondly, God's word is a curse on the wicked. He explains what the content of this word is. He says in verse 3, This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. Every thief shall be expelled according to this side of the scroll, and every perjurer shall be expelled according to that side of it. You understand there being two sides of the scroll, one curse written on one and one on the other. Now, what I want us to see is that from the very beginning, God's word contained both a curse and a blessing. Way back in Genesis 3, what do we have? We have a curse for Satan and for the seed of Satan, the seed of the serpent, and a blessing for the woman and for her seed. Genesis 3, 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle, more than all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, warfare, strife between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In the course of two verses, you have both a curse on the serpent and all of his seed. That means Satan and all who follow his lies. All who follow false ways and sin against the Lord God. And you have a blessing on the seed of the woman. All those who follow Christ. There it is. And that summarizes the whole rest of the word of God from beginning to end. And particularly, of course, the law. You know, not so long ago we were in Deuteronomy. And what we find in the law of God. Characterized in Deuteronomy 11.26. Behold, I set before you what? A blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I command you today to go after other gods you have not known. And you remember how it was wonderfully pictured. You have these two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, and you have the blessing on Gerizim and the, the curse on Ebal, and there they are, the blessing and the curse of God's word. Jonathan Edwards, by the way, thinks that the reason why there's those particular sins are being pointed out of uh, those of, of thieving and of falsely swearing by God's word is to represent the two tables of the law. If you, if you don't know, the Ten Commandments are divided up into two tables. The first and more important table has to do with our relationship to God. You shall have no other gods before me and all the rest that go along with it. And then the, the second table has to do with the way we interact with man. Thou shalt not kill and all the rest of those things. And those things, you see, are uh, the two tables. And he says one represents one, right? Taking the name of the Lord God in vain. And the other curse represents the other table of the law. And therefore all sinners are included in this curse. Well, anyways, as I say, the word of God contains a curse on the wicked. And so it is not only with Genesis, not only with the law of God and Moses, but the whole word. And, you know, even, by the way, this is interesting. I mentioned both from Genesis to Revelation. Even that very passage in Revelation where you have the angel going out with the everlasting gospel to preach to all the world. You say, wonderful, the gospel, it's such a blessing. Do you know what the, the next word that angel says? Revelation 14.10. It's a curse against the wicked. He himself also shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which has poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. 
It's one of the most graphic descriptions of eternal hell that could be imagined. The smoke of the the wrath of God being poured out goes up forever and ever. They're tormented in the presence of the, the Lamb and the holy angels. And that goes right along with the everlasting gospel. That is, by the way, why we always include both the warning along the bad news with our gospel. When, when the young people, a couple of years ago, when I was teaching them how to, how to share their faith, the step one, what's step one? The bad news, right? You have to explain that. That's all of God's word. Well, anyways, applying the principle that we had early, putting these two things together, what we had earlier said about the power of God's word and that it contains a curse, I want us to see that God's word is not a mere information. It's, it's not like that. Verse 4 says, I will send out the curse, says the Lord of hosts. It shall enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. It shall remain in the midst of his house and consume it with its timber and stones. It will consume it. It will destroy it. The curse will come and it will land. It's not an insignificant curse. It will land and it will destroy those upon whom it falls. It's not going to fail, by the way. It's not, going to, it's not like some fallible uh, missile that sometimes misses its mark. God's curse goes out into everyone to, to whom it applies. It lights and it, uh, it lands there. And it comes and it does not let go. It consumes the wicked in their wickedness. And it will accomplish that which it says. It will destroy the wicked. Well, God's word flies. That word contains a curse upon the wicked. And then thirdly, God will remove the wicked. As we move on to that other vision, it says in verse 5, Then the angel who talked with me came out and said to me, Lift your eyes now and see what this is that goes forth. So I asked, What is it? And he said, It is a basket that is going forth. He also said, This is their resemblance throughout the earth. Here is a lead disc lifted up, and here is a woman sitting inside the basket. And what did he know? Here is a crucial part. Then he said, This is the point at which it becomes clear. This is wickedness and he thrust her down into the basket and threw the lead cover over its mouth and you know then that this basket is taken away into the land of Shinar and what I said in the introduction is that Shinar is a word for Babylon and that is hugely important to help us to understand this that Babylon is the, the terrible place of banishment where they, the people of God have recently been rescued from. They have been pulled as brands from the fire, from, from the place of banishment and exile in Babylon. But even now, in their midst here in Jerusalem, we are being warned about the, what is going to happen to the wicked, that they are going to be banished, that a, a great lead cover is going to be thrust over them, and they're going to be taken away into the land of exile and banishment. Because if we had first in that curse, we had a picture of one element of hell, which is the consuming fire. That this curse is going to consume them and their house and is going to burn up all the timber and the stones. That's a picture of the, the fires of hell. There's an element also here of banishment. Because as we even had it in the New Testament reading in Matthew chapter 8, that, that those, who are, those unrepentant sinners are going to be thrown into outer darkness, the place of banishment, Babylon. And that's what's going to happen to the wicked. Well, what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, it's certainly a warning to sinners. It's a warning that wickedness is going to be dealt with. This picture of banishment and confinement of the eternal judgment to come in hell. So it's a warning to sinners. But also, interestingly, I think it is a promise to the nation. 
You know, Isaiah 9, 18 reminds us, Wickedness burns as a fire. It shall devour the briars and thorns and kindle in the thickets of the forest. Though the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up and the people shall be as fuel for the fire and no man shall spare his brother. And what's that saying is that the wicked people among our midst, those who were in the land of Israel, those who were among God's people, those individual sinners were the reason why they were brought into exile. The reason why the nation was destroyed was because of all the wicked who were among them. And therefore, the greatest threat that came to that nation right then, the greatest threat that, that um, Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the governor had as they were there back in Jerusalem after the exile was the wicked might spring up again among us. And then what? If the wicked proliferate among us, then the Lord's going to do the very same thing. He's already said that curse has not been abrogated. But the answer is that the wicked are going to be taken away from them. The wicked are going to be removed. And that's a wonderful promise. That God is not going to allow this time the wicked to determine the fate of his own people. But he will remove them from among them. But even better... Even better is the promise that we already had in Zechariah 3. Hear, O Joshua the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant the branch. And this is in all capitals, and gloriously so, because it's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. And behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. See, God is going to provide atonement. The problem that happened before is not going to be repeated for God's people because he is going to deal with the wickedness. He is going to get rid of it so that the people who are in God's people, their wickedness will be cleansed. Their wickedness will be dealt with. And the reason and the the means by which he's done this is the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ, the branch that he's setting up. I will remove the iniquity of the land in that one day and praise God. Yes, it's a warning for the sinners that they will be taken away. But also for God's people who put their trust in the Lord, their iniquity will be, will be dealt with by the Lord himself. You know, the, the wonderful promise to us as we try to make the connection to our New Testament faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is that, the, yes, the word of God contains a curse. The law is a curse. Galatians 3 makes it very clear. As many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. This, this law. No one can perfectly keep it. It is therefore a curse. And it will fall upon all those who seek to justify themselves by the law. No one is justified. That's what he goes on to say. No one is justified by the law in the sight of God. Is evident. The just shall live by faith. You see, God has provided another way. We do not seek to justify ourselves by keeping this law because it will be a curse to us. But rather, he has provided a way in Christ to deal with our unrighteousness, our wickedness, and all we have to do is believe. The law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ, and here's a wonderful thing, verse 13 and this is, this is a blessing, not a curse. 
Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. You say, where, what happened to that? That word of God, you said it's going to happen. You said, Bill, it's going to be true. You said, and we know that there were sinners back then. What about the curse that was supposed to fall on them? I'll tell you what happened to that curse. It fell on Christ instead. And God is not going to remove us as people. He's going to remove the wickedness from us because that curse, that wickedness, it fell on Christ And the wrath of God due upon us, it fell on him. And therefore the curse of the law is removed. We are freed from the curse of law. That the blessing of Abraham, not the curse, the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. I'll say just more on that as we move now formally into application. The very first thing I would say is we've got to take seriously the curse. Each and every time the word of God is, is preached, we can be very, fairly certain that there are those who have not yet believed the gospel, those who have not yet put their faith in Christ. And to you, I'd say, take this curse seriously. It, it's, it's not said in vain. You know, Deuteronomy 29, some stirring words I'm reminded of when we were in, in Deuteronomy. And the Lord says, So that there may not be among you man or woman... Or family or tribe, whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to serve other gods. And so it may not happen when he hears the words of this curse, that he blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, even though I follow the dictates of my heart. As though the drunkard could be included with the sober, the Lord would not spare him. For then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy would burn against that man, and every curse that is written in this book would settle on him. And the Lord would blot out his name from under heaven. You see how it is? This curse settling on the wicked. It always finds its mark. It will always settle on and do what it says. And what he's saying is, please do not hear this, this warning. Please do not hear this curse and say, it doesn't apply to me. This is not my problem. Please don't let that be the case with you. Because it says the Lord would not spare him. And that the anger of the Lord would burn against that person. If the curse is written against those who have sinned against the law, believe it and receive it. Take it seriously. And rather, we should turn to Christ in faith. You know, what a horrible exercise this would be. There was no Lord's table here. There was only half of the word of God. And all I did was read Genesis, maybe, you know, Genesis 3.14. And only read the second half of, of Revelation chapter 14. That proclaims a curse. And then we never did get to the blessing. We never did get to the gospel. What a horrible thing. But praise God that's not the case. There is a way of escape. There is a way in which we can escape the curse of God's law. Which will certainly settle upon the wicked. And we turn to Christ in faith. Christ has indeed redeemed us from the curse of the law. He's become a curse for us. Why would we possibly want to remain in our situation? Humble yourself. Put your faith in Christ. He has borne the curse for his people, and through him we can be saved. And I urge you to take seriously that warning that is given to you. Because that same word, right now it is a warning so that you might turn, but one day it will be a settled curse. In eternity you will never get rid of it, and it will simply consume you as a fire, and the fire of God's wrath and eternal hell. Turn to the Lord God in faith. And secondly, I would say to God's people that we ought to understand a little bit more of the world's reaction against us. You know, this has been a theme so much 
of the evening sermon that we have to understand there's a reason why the world doesn't like us as much as we'd like it to. This word of God which we preach, which we witness to by our obedience to it, what does it represent to the world? What does the world get from it? What is it seeing? What is it feeling as it receives from it? What Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2. We are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death. And to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? you know what we're saying as we come as a Christian to the world around us? We're reminders of things that they most want to forget in this world. There is a God. You are a sinner. There is judgment to come. They would love to forget these things, but they can't as long as we are there. That's why they want to silence us. Of course, they don't mind if we have our private religion hermetically sealed away like that woman the, woman, the wickedness, the woman that represented wickedness with her lead lid over, that would be okay as long as our voice is not heard in the land. But as long as it is, we represent the curse that yet falls upon them. And what they don't know is we also represent the only possibility of life, the only possibility of escape. But to the worldly, we're the savor of death. To God's people, we're the savor of life, which is why God's people... As we have visitors come from other places, they love to hear God's word. They love to be among the presence of God's people. It's a savor of life to them. Well, thirdly, I would say don't take the name of the Lord God in vain or steal. It would be rather silly of us to go through such a chapter and not to speak of the very practical implications of those particular sins that are being highlighted. And I'll read to you what our larger catechism, and I recommend the larger catechism to you, because you say, I'm not a thief. Well, let me just explain to you what the larger catechism says with regard to these commandments. First, because it's the most important one in the first table of the law, larger catechism 113. What are the sins forbidden in the third commandment? And this is speaking of taking the the name of the Lord in vain. The sins forbidden in the third commandment are not using God's name as it is required and the abuse of it as an ignorant, vain, irreverent, profane, superstitious, or wicked mentioning, or otherwise using his titles, attributes, ordinances, or works, by blasphemy, perjury, all sinful cursings, oaths, vows, and lots, violating our oaths and vows, as we think about taking membership vows, violating our oaths and vows, if lawful, and fulfilling them is of things unlawful, murmuring and quarreling at, Curious prying into and misapplying of God's decrees and providences, misinterpreting, misapplying, or any way perverting the word or any part of it, to profane jests, curious or unprofitable questions, vain janglings, or the maintaining of false doctrines, abusing it, the creatures, or anything contained under the name of God, to charms, sinful lust and practices, the maligning, scorning, reviling, or any ways opposing of God's truth, grace, and ways, making profession of religion and hypocrisy, or for sinister ends, being ashamed of it, or being ashamed to it, thy unconformable, unwise, unfruitful, and offensive walking, or backsliding from it. I think we're guilty of breaking the third commandment. How about then the eighth commandment? The duties required in the Eighth Commandment are truth, faithfulness, and justice in contracts and commerce between man and man, rendering to everyone his due, restitution of goods unlawfully detained from the right owners thereof, giving and lending freely according to our abilities and the necessities of others, 
moderation of our judgments, wills and affections concerning worldly, worldly goods, a provident care and study to get, keep, use, and dispose these things which are necessary and convenient for the sustentation of our nature and suitable to our condition, a lawful calling and diligence in it, frugality, avoiding unnecessary lawsuits and suretyship, or other like engagements, and an endeavor by all just and lawful means to procure, preserve, and further the wealth and outward estate of others as well as our own. Now, who can say that they've completely kept that commandment? This word applies to us, brothers and sisters. We must obey his law. Fourthly, I would say church discipline is good. Uh, you say, what does this have to do with it? Remember the promise? God's removing the wicked from our midst. Well, you see, the Lord has a mechanism for doing that among the church and is called church discipline. And in fact, as, as Beth joins as a communicant member of the church, one of the things that she puts herself under is that possibility of discipline. And all of us who have joined, likewise. And it's a good thing. It's a right thing. Because otherwise, the wrath of God falls on us and the church when sin is kept unchecked. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since truly you are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And what it's saying is that we should not have those unrepentant, wicked people among us carrying on in their sins. Of course we are sinners, but we should repent and we come to the Lord to be washed in his blood. But those who carry on in infamous and, and, and public sins and do not listen to any reason or rebuke, they should be put out from amongst our midst, lest the curse come upon us, lest the Lord take our candlestick away, lest the Lord come and fight against us with the word of his mouth. Fifthly, finally, and perhaps most importantly, we need to pray for the word to run swiftly. That's what it says in 2 Thessalonians 3.1. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. And brothers, I am stirred up about this. I, I feel this great frustration that the word of God, that it should run swiftly among us, that it should do the great work. And, and how we are grieved, aren't we, when the word of God is preached and nothing happens. How we're grieved when sinners come and hear the word of God and nothing happens. They're not saved. We ourselves are not built up. That the word of God is being preached at many faithful churches in this land in the northeast. And yet they seem to shrivel away. We need to pray earnestly that the word of God would run swiftly. That is a, the reason why we've instituted this new prayer meeting. on uh, A monthly prayer meeting on Saturdays. That we might humble ourselves and present to God our petition. That he would do what only he can do and make this word efficacious. We can only speak it. God, through his Holy Spirit, can make it to do everything that he accomplishes, everything he desires for it to accomplish. And we must pray that he would. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what can we say to these things? Who indeed is sufficient to even relay them, to communicate them, let alone, Lord, how can we make these things to be efficacious? No one can do it. Only you can. Lord, we know that your word flies, it is powerful, it goes out to all the world. No one in the end even escapes it. And Lord, that this word contains a curse on all the wicked. You will destroy them, you will remove them from your presence and the presence of your people. 
But Lord, even in so saying, we know it is a warning, a good and right warning. And we pray, Lord, that all here might heed this warning and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. And Lord, how we pray that you'd enable your people to live in accordance with your word, that we'd not be guilty of these things, but rather there'd be righteousness and holiness among us. How we pray, Lord, indeed, that your word would run swiftly, both in our own hearts, and that there'd be no opposition to it among us. Rather, Lord, your spirit would to wing it on its way, here and in other places, that, Lord, your church might be built up. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.